from the foothills of the beautiful Rocky Mountains. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be. You are listening to tonight's of Awakening online radio program, and I am your host, Justin Gates. It's been a minute, huh? How you guys doing? You guys doing all right? I haven't seen you guys in a really long time. Um, I don't know if this is going to be a daily thing, a weekly thing, a monthly thing, but how about we just do one episode at a time and uh, see how that works out for us. <laughs> Not that we all don't have a lot of time sitting at home, most of us right now, right? Uh, today I have the at privilege the of hanging out. Who, who's that? What's that? Uh, at the moment, I think we're all yeah. around. <laughs> but today I have the privilege of hanging out and speaking to some great people. Um, some of you guys may recognize them. You may not. Uh, it's okay. I'm vouching for them. They're good, They're good people. Uh, they come to us from diverse professional and, and uh, personal backgrounds, they all share a common thing, and that is to serve. Uh, and even even more pointed, they to protect and preserve uh, the peace wherever they may find it, in their locations and in their in their hometowns and in their uh, in their houses, in their schools, in their wherever. Uh, so, in short, they act and serve guardians, and we're going to get into that today. Uh, that's kind of the theme of our show. And let me see who we have here with us. Let me make sure we have everybody. I'll introduce first uh, Jed. Jed, what's up, buddy? Not much. How are you doing today? I'm all right. Why don't you uh, take us through, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started. I've been a, a law enforcement professional for about 10 years. Uh, someone who follows the the nightly path and uh, essentially just try and live by a good moral code and uh, make a difference where I can. We also have with us Jared, who is uh, an author you guys remember, maybe remember me talking about a couple years ago, um, but he's also a martial arts instructor, and I'll let him introduce the rest of himself. Jared, what's up, dude? How's it going, everybody? Um, this is Jared Michaels, or J.A. Michaels, as is titled on my books. Um, I am the longest active member of the online Jedi community. I started before the message boards ever existed. Um, I did private law enforcement and martial arts instruction for about 10 years together. I have been a martial arts instructor since about 2004 on and off right now I obviously don't have a dojo open because nobody has a dojo open but <laughs> um, I, I take my path as a Jedi Knight very very similarly to an old Budo not just a fighting system but an entire way of living a, a true knightly path and how you interact with people, how you deal with them, how you help them, how sometimes you don't help them because sometimes they don't really need the help. And I just, I work with trying to integrate every part of my path into every aspect of my life. And last but not least, uh, with us thus far, uh, we may have a couple more joining us, but uh, you guys know this guy. His name is Charles. 
he's kind of popular in some places. Uh, don't don't swell his head up or anything. But uh, Charles, welcome to the welcome to the fray. Thank you, and it's good to be here. <laughs> and for the people that don't know me on Blog Talk Radio, I'm one of the other hosts for KOA. I'm a practicing mystic, and I'm on the nightly path. Um, I don't have the background that these two fine gentlemen do in any form of law enforcement, but I have done some combative training in boxing, sword fighting, uh, bit of wrestling and such. And I've done a fair bit to try and help people out whenever they're in bad situations. Very good. So I'm going to throw this question out before we get into the questions that we, uh, that you guys had seen. Um, over the last couple of weeks, but but I wanted to ask one, one important question, and we'll start with you, Jed. In your estimation, what is a guardian? I would say a guardian is just someone who, uh, within this path, I would say somebody who trains themselves more as a warrior monk. <clears throat> That's how I've always seen the path. Uh, you know, if you you look at the Jedi of the movies. From the from from a new hope, you had Obi Wan Kenobi. He had the robes. He had a sword. I mean, essentially, what he was was a space knight. And so, uh, the archetypes within uh, the hero's journey, and uh, you just saw, essentially, he was on a knightly path. I mean, he was, for me as a seven-year-old boy, he was he was Merlin. He was the wizard. He had the sword. And uh, that's how I just see a guardian, just as somebody who's trying to make a difference, maybe a little more martial in nature, and somebody who exchange wherever and whenever they can. That's how I see the the uh, the uh, guardian path. Jared, how about you? How do you view a guardian of peace? A guardian of Well, a guardian in and of itself is someone that steps in the way. They walk into danger. They stand between those that are violently aggressive or psychologically aggressive to to shield those that cannot defend themselves. They they guard in the name. Um, A guardian of peace, very specifically, though, is one that doesn't necessarily have trouble causing war of a sort, personal, interactive combat, be it physical, verbal, text-based, however you want to address that situation, but they, they don't have trouble causing it, but they don't want to. They don't look for it. They don't go out and go, who can I tear down today for being a fool? And their primary focus along this path is... Is, as as Jed said, to affect change where they can. And he used Obi-Wan as a good example of that. And I love that example. Um, I am a little more partial to Donnie Yen's character in Rogue One because even without all the laser swords and the superpowers, he was there doing everything he could for what was right in his mind to affect change throughout the galaxy, willing to give his life to save countless others. Charles Odinson, 
Thorson. <laughs> that oh god, Thorson. don't call me Thorson. <laughs> <laughs> There's someone else out there who's got a name uh, associated with that. Don't 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 put me in that basket. <laughs> I know. You know what? The, the whole just uh, just the whole the whole Norse thing is really touchy these days. We've got to kind of navigate it a little. But yeah, uh, what do you see if if I ask you uh, tell me what the role of a guardian is? Um, how would you answer that? I would say that a guardian is someone who's made the decision that the value of their life is in being willing to put the value of other people's lives first. Um, be that in a physical context, be it in an escalatory context, be it in any, any context in which someone is acting as a guardian, um, even in a mystical context. As I said, I've got to come from the mystical point of view, but when I step in to protect someone else on the mystical situations, I'm, I'm making the decision that the value of my life is in my ability to protect the other persons. So I put their life at a, at a greater value than my own. Um, I, I think that extends to all forms of guardians. You've, you've made the decision that the value of your existence is stepping in the way for someone else when they're in trouble. Now, I do want to say as a path, the guardian goes a step further because the whole of their, their training and preparedness, the whole of how they live their life is to hone themselves towards that. So they tend to go a little bit more on the physical side of things because nine out of 10 times, the things that will kill you in this world are bullets and knives and, and bludgeons and not anything spiritual or psychological. So the guardian recognizes the greatest threats, the most immediate threats are physical and they prepare themselves in a physical way for that. But, I think they still have to balance that with a spiritual, philosophical, and psychological understanding of themselves so that they maintain a balance going in. Otherwise, they can't protect anyone. They become uh, either unhinged or, as Jared said, uh, they become a bully if they don't balance that. They, they get too good at the physical part. So there's that other factor that has to balance that in for a guardian to truly be on the path of a guardian, not just someone who's a guard as it were, at that time. Boy, I, I would hate to be person number four having to follow those answers. Those are really good. <laughs> I won't, I'm not even going to attempt to add anything to that. You are person number four. No. You are oh, person no. number four. I, I am not going to dirty – I'm not going to dirty up those answers. Those are great answers. Uh, all right, so Charles, you don't have the – you don't have the um, – What's the word I'm looking for? The advantage of knowing what we're, what was sent out. Uh, so, but you must firm for me for almost over ten, about ten years now. I think you can handle it on the fly. So, we're just gonna we're just gonna roll with this. Um, and I'll kind of mix up who I call on just to kind of give us a different flavor. Who follows who? So, uh, Jared, we're gonna start with you. Um, as it relates to a guardian, how do you define your path, your personal path? You say Jed or Jared? Jared, I'm sorry. Okay, just making sure. No, you appreciate it. How do I define my personal path? Well, I kind of gave it away a minute ago, bringing up the Donnie N character from Rogue One. He is, in my estimation, the epitome of what a knight of the Jedi path, which I have walked since 96, um... He is the epitome of what a Jedi Knight should be. 
He's not worried about politics or big big battles or any of this other stuff that that any of the other movie or book Jedi were always immersed in. He was the little guy. He was the one that didn't have the laser sword and the superpowers or vision, to be honest. And he still had his faith in the Force that protected him for the most part. It even gave him the ability to see to a certain extent. Or somehow that laser crossbow was just finding its own people, whichever. But my path as a knight is to be that monk. That monk that has this staff that he will bash you in the head with if he has to, but is just as quick to defuse a situation with a joke. It's not to be it's not to be violent, but it's not to be a pacifist. It's supposed to it's it's the balance between the two. The middle road, so to speak. And I'm sitting here surrounded on all sides by weapons of war. I've got side bludgeons and swords on one side, a big rack of swords on the other, and a box of knives and a gun and all of my weapons are around me, but they don't define me. In fact, I often don't train with any of them. The, the most I carry is a pocket knife most days, and that's more of a tool. But my path is to be prepared to protect. And if that means I crack a joke and make myself look stupid, that's fine. I don't care. I know who I am. If that means I crack a skull and have to go to court over it, that's fine. I know what I did. Charles is right. It's putting the value of yourself below the value of the others that you are taking care of. And my path in that, which is the path of the Jedi Knight, it's, it's a spiritual experience in and of itself. Um, and I'm starting to ramble, so I'm going to stop. Well, let me ask you, do, do you see it... Uh, personally, do you see this more as a, a philosophy that kind of guides your way, or do you or you take this religiously? I actively take this religiously, mm-hmm. and not not in the dogmatic sense of I'm praying to a golden Yoda over in the corner or anything. It is it's not religious in the fact that it's not structured enough to be considered a religion, but it is the core and entirety of my spirituality. Fair enough. Um, let's check on this. We we have somebody new real quick. Uh, let's check on him. Caller with uh, area code 865. What's your name? Hey, hey. Not you, Kai. Hey. <laughs> you Hello, hey, hey. What's that? <laughs> now, who's the other person on the line, Justin? I, I don't know. I've drawn a blank. I I can't see to no, put I the mean, voice to. Hold on. Are you seriously not sure who I am? I know who you are. And I know okay. who everybody else is, too. You don't know who everybody else is. That's right. So I'm asking, who's the other guy? <laughs> well, we have, we have Jed with us, and we have Charles, and we have Jared. Jed. Jed. Jed, Jed I. Knight. As in Jed. He has I he has did. no other names. He has no other names. 
He has the name Jed. <laughs> That's another name that I know him by, and I really want to call him by it. Well, you don't. <laughs> I'm not right. going to. Okay, mute your phone. Uh, Charles, Charles, same same question to you. Um, how do you define so, your path? How do you define your path as it fits in um, with what we're talking about today? Um, and and do you see it yours as a philosophy or kind of religious or, or or how do you view that? Well, uh, to get this out there, I was a Jedi Knight once, and everyone make the joke now. Um, whether or not your father was uh, is indifferent to that quote. And it's not something that leaves you because it kind of works its way into your bones. Um, what it means is that for me, no matter what I'm doing, no matter what my practices are, I can't just back down when I see someone getting hurt and I can't just step away. And I think a better example of this would be last night at about 12 o'clock, there was a young man on a motorcycle. We just took our dogs out for a walk. Um, I had to convince my dogs not to eat him because that's what my dogs like to do to people they don't know. And his motorcycle had died. It was a uh, moped, I believe is the proper term, uh, combination of electrical and gas engine that was not working. So my wife and I went over and proceeded to help this man repair his bike, found out he was a 16-year-old who'd been emancipated going to get into any other details on his life he's lived a rough life and this doesn't sound like a big guardian story but it, it will in a moment because as soon as you make that connection with another person you're taking a terrible risk especially when you see that that person's got tattered clothing you can you can gauge just by who they are that this person's probably uh done some things that you wouldn't approve of in your life but they're in need and at that point, you have to question if your ability to edge out another 50% safety that day or another 60% safety, if you look at it that way, which in a sense we all do, we all measure risk versus reward on our own safety. You've got to ask if gaining that extra 10%, 20% safety is worth letting this guy put a, a bike home seven miles, which ultimately was what we wound up finding out how far it would have been. And without thinking, my first decision was, well, do you need a hand? Now, that's a good person action. It's a kind person action. But in a sense, it's a guardian action because you are not willing to let someone else be in a bad situation, even if there's a risk to you to intervene. And it's not throwing yourself in the line of fire and it's not going toe-to-toe with, you know, a 400-pound gorilla in a bar, for sure. But it's something that gets inside your bones. So I would say that defines part of the path that I'm on. Um, I always tell people when they ask me, uh, as a mystic, do you have any responsibility to other people uh, to use what you've learned in a good way? I say, no, that has nothing to do with being a mystic. You have no responsibility. But as a person, if you have other paths that are a part of your life or other things that are part of who you are, you might, and you might need to weigh that. So I can't say that it is a part of my path in that I don't have a, uh, 
for the mystical side at least, a code of conduct there. But as a knight, it certainly is because the knightly virtues demand that I protect others that are in need. They demand that I intervene. So as a knight who is a mystic, it is a part of my path. But if it was, if I was just a mystic, it wouldn't be. So this is where you get into that definition of self and that all-important knowing who you are and what is in your bones. Now, what does that mean in terms of how I change the way I do things? It means where most people will step away from a, a dangerous situation. I will take a risk analysis first. You know, Can I get involved in a way where if this goes sideways, I can still come out alive? And if I can't come out alive, am I protecting other lives in the process or am I throwing mine away needlessly? Uh, last night, if this kid would have jumped me, I could have handled it. It would have hurt. My arthritis definitely would have uh, given me a full report on it. But the other side of that was if he didn't jump me, which he didn't, could I still be me and just go back in the house and leave this poor guy out there trying to fix a machine in the middle of the night in a dark street with no help and not a kind soul for miles? And I couldn't do that. So I would say that for me, as a knight, it's a, it is a religious thing. It is a spiritual thing. It is something that is so bone deep that it defines me more than being Norse, more than being spiritual, and more than being a mystic even. Because I can stop being a mystic. Well, it's my day job. I can't stop it right now, but I could do something else um, and never be a mystic again, but I don't think I could turn my back on someone in need. Not, not without having a hard time sleeping and I wouldn't be able to do it twice. That's for sure. So I, does that answer it? Uh, yeah, I guess if that's your answer, <laughs> I, I think that I really do. I, well, I, I really do feel like it does kind of become a religious thing, especially with the codes and mantras and the, you know, the, the nightly, uh, you said virtues, we call them agreements. Uh, here, yes. but uh, but you know it, it can't be religious, and as as Jared said, it's really hard hard to find dogma when you stick to those very simple simple uh, precepts. Uh, Jed, yeah, let me Jed, let let oh, me what? let me say real quick. Uh, I don't have a dogma. To, I, I want to reinforce that as well. Dogma is is a is a thing. I have dogs. I have no dogma, and now I'm done. Okay. Jed, uh, I know it's been a long time since we heard your voice, man. Charles can get a little (laughs) long-winded, but uh, (laughs) I just tease him with you, Charles. I love you. Um, Same question to you. How do you define um, your path as it relates to topics today? I I see my path as a uh, a philosophy, a way of looking at things, a – I wouldn't call it a religion, but I would call it spiritual. So I, I think it's just something that's uh, spiritual and ethereal and something that takes place in, in the physical realm. Uh, one thing I did want to touch on as it pertains to being a guardian, I don't think you necessarily have to be uh, 
physical. I mean, there's a physical component to it, but uh, an instructor from years ago uh, basically said, we advocate for those who cannot advocate for themselves. And I don't think I've ever heard it put better than that. So for me, uh, one, one of the biggest things is just being able to uh, hold someone accountable. Hold someone accountable for what they've done through, uh, through, through my job and the, the abilities or the opportunities and the positions that it, it puts me in to enact that accountability. That's really, that's how I see it. Uh, you know, for me, it, it's one of those things where you can, you can stop a car and it might be a, a public safety issue. But for me, the bigger thing is something where you're uh, finding out the truth of what happened with a child molester or something along those lines and investigating that and bringing those charges forth and holding that person accountable, seeing a person who was once the victim now realizing that for them, the person that they never thought would be held accountable, the person that they never thought would see justice is seeing justice. So that's how I view it. That's how I see my path. That's how I see the guardian path. I just see it as a uh, a bigger picture, uh, an all-encompassing picture, and that's really how I try and look at all of it. I, I look at not just components, but one component bleeds into another component, bleeds into another, until it just becomes a a homogenized picture of the world, as opposed to separate entities. And what's great, what's great about some of these professions um, is they they really do give us a lot of tools, not just physical ones either. A lot of tools to to do the things that you just you just mentioned. Yeah, I I, I agree. I agree. Um, that's that's exactly what it is. You know, you just you get those tools and you get those opportunities. And you get those those possibilities. Uh, I, I think sometimes another thing with the guardian path is just uh, to to use your brain, to to use your brain in, in whatever capacity that might be to to think and to expand your your own horizons, your own mind, and uh, just see the possibilities. The guardian path in all its different iterations definitely to me seems like the most popular choice for 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 different philosophies, different religions, different orders, things like this. Um it really does become the most popular one. Uh, many because many for many of the reasons that you guys have listed. Let's bring Ali in here. Hello. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hi. I knew you were. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but I, I could be wrong, but Allie was, if she was not the very first call I ever had uh, back in 
2009. Uh, she was yes. number two, for sure. For sure. Um, hello, my dear. Uh, this this uh, this show, as you're gathering, we're kind of talking about the Guardian path in all different in all its glory, and the different ways that we can we can practice it and the ways we see it. Uh, tell everybody a little bit about how um, your background um, kind of relates to this, and then I'll ask some questions, if you don't mind. Okay. So many people that are that are knowledgeable of my, of my history in the um, in the Knights of Awakening crew, I've done things like Let's Regroup, Building Stronger Citizens. I hosted Force Realists, and a lot of it was Jedi material. My background on why I could inform on a lot of that stuff is because I was classified as what you would call a Jedi Guardian. Today, I consider myself more mystic because I don't really act in the Guardian capacity as much as I would have wanted to previously. But I started out in the Army as military police, and then when I got out of the Army, I started working with a group called Heartland Jedi, and we teamed up with a search and rescue team called Four Rivers Canine Search and Rescue, and we uh, we were working to help bring peace, so we were guardians of peace, to different communities, whether it was the military, a sense of peace to Americans in Hawaii, against people who were really wanting to yell and scream at us for things that eh, we couldn't really control. I mean, I'm sure higher-ups could, but we couldn't. And then we also were ambassadors uh, in Iraq and in Japan. At least those are what I was working at. So... I've had a lot of exposure to different groups of people, different cultures, and really had an opportunity to to look at evil in the face, whether it was human-created evil or evil in the sense of what's in the atmosphere around you, whether it's diseased or uh, a culture of fear. A lot of, a lot of crazy stuff. So that's really where my background is. You you were speaking about uh, uh, jobs, and 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 I want to get this important uh, question out. It's important to me because it because it actually kind of goes in line with how people view guardians. Um, you said that you view yourself more as a mystic now because um, you're not doing the guardian. The, the how did you put it? You said. You said you're more of a mystic now because you're not doing uh, – <laughs> can you remember what you said? Uh, <laughs> okay, help me so out here. basically I'm more a mystic because I work with people in a mystic field. That's uh, that's more towards psychology than it right, is right. in actually helping people. And that's not because I don't want to. In fact, uh, I'm trying to get back to that status by starting to work with the Red Cross. And eventually, I'm hoping that I'll be able to slide into a position where I'll be more act. But it's just, it's mostly that I don't have a lot of human to human interaction. And okay, that's why you. I don't class myself as a guardian anymore. Okay. That, that helps. Uh, 
So, Jed, do you really think that uh, – I won't say do you really think, but uh, how important are our professions uh, – how, how important of a role does a person's profession play in them being a guardian in their day-to-day life? Um, is, it, is it absolutely necessary, or are there things we could do to um, still be guardians without having to be, you know, those, those prime roles, uh, soldier, uh, police officer, uh, so on and so forth? Do I think it's necessary? No, no, I don't. I don't think it's necessary. I think what it provides is opportunities. You, you, you put yourself into opportunities. You put yourself into, uh, metaphorically, you put yourself into the line of fire, and so you have more chances. But do I think it's... Uh, you know, a necessity? Absolutely not. I mean, you can go, you can, you can volunteer, even if you're working at a, a soup kitchen or, or going and volunteering with kids, or uh, there was someone within the community who, his particular group, they went and they, they taught people how to read. They taught people who were illiterate. There are many, many possibilities or many, many avenues that you could take and many, many avenues you could explore. Uh, for me, my, my job is one of many possibilities for this. I think the bigger thing is just to actively seek something that that allows you or puts you in that position to affect that change. Uh, Jared, Jared, you still with me? Yeah. All right. So I'm right here. Um, we're we're gonna we're gonna stick to, to the experience part of this, um, and I'm gonna ask you, how does your path if, uh, um, affect your view of the things you do daily, whether that's teaching martial arts or or anything really? Well. I always try to filter any experience that I have that's new. I always try to filter it through the the lens of the Jedi. I always try to apply predominantly the Jedi code to it because I find that if you just look, everything is in that code. I don't care if it's five little short lines. It's all there. And so my path helps to dictate my actions throughout the day. The biggest ones are the lack of emotional, uh, an uncontrolled emotional response and the lack of acting without knowledge. Those are the first two lines for a reason. There is no emotion, there's peace, and there is no ignorance, there's knowledge. So my path, for the most part, from day to day, is making sure that I don't blow up on somebody because I don't know what's going on. If it's an... Using a physical example, even though they are less common than verbal altercations or whatnot, using the physical example is if I walk up and there's somebody in a, in a fight, the job is I don't get to decide who's in the right and just knock the other guy out. You know, I get to separate it and find out what's going on 
see if I can defuse the fight, and if the violent aggressor doesn't stop, then neutralize that to, for the safety of the other person. But even at that point, you, you could be acting incorrectly without that knowledge. The, the person that is losing this fight may have come up with a knife to rob the other person. So just because you're stopping a situation doesn't mean you're stopping them from walking, you know? <clears throat> and that's, that's the, the knowledge that you don't have. That's the ignorance that you do have that you try to fight. And so teaching martial arts, um, doing the security work I used to do, for the last five years I've been a mechanic. And it works really well there. I don't know what's going on with this bike. But I'm going to, you know. So it makes me take a step back and not just jump into stuff like I did when I was a teenager. Because we were all teenagers and stupid at one point. And we all probably have a few bumps and bruises from it. I'm missing some teeth because of some stupid crap I did as a teenager, you know. And I keep them like that to remind me to not do it again. Allie, you talked about being in Iraq and some really interesting far-off places. Uh, I'm sure that you've had a few experiences that may have colored your outlook on life, shall we say? Uh, (laughs) Well, okay, so so first of all, anybody who understands the term, I was a fobbit. I was... I was a fobbit that worked with detainees every single day for 12 hours a day, but I was still a fobbit. So I didn't get to go outside the wire and really see half the stuff that my husband did or even one of the other squads. Uh, (laughs) We had a squad that worked every night, and then on occasion they would go out and do a convoy in the morning. Yeah, no. (laughs) But... um, (laughs) I didn't see half of what they did. I didn't I had a I had an NCO and another person they were called out. They thought they were going to go pick up a detainee just outside the wire. No one really understood why they were going to do it. But they were going to go do it and they got out there. They went out there without any gear, just a helmet and a vest and one M16 or uh not not an M16, M4. One M4 each. That's it. And the vehicle was not armored. And they were told, okay, just keep driving. You'll see where you need to go. Just, uh, you'll, you'll go out there and go get them. They go about two miles out in this vehicle. And they came up to an Iraqi police station. And when they arrived, they were, they found a scene where, Someone had taken a bus full of chlorine gas and ran it into the facility. And so they had to go in and help. Some of them just there to find out what was going on with a family member or whatever. There were kids. There were women. There were, there were husbands and whatnot. And so they were there helping deal with that. And I don't know if you've ever seen what that looks like. I've seen video footage. I don't think I could have done that with a straight face. So I didn't see what they saw. I've only heard byproducts. For me, though, 
when I went over there to Iraq, I did have a misunderstanding of what was going on. This idea in my head that every single terrorist was a terrorist because they had this crazy belief that Allah was going to support them and give them 72 versions if they happened to die. Kind of very Baha'u'llah. But uh, when I got out there, what I learned by working with these detainees, I found some that did believe that crazy stuff. I came across two guys, two guys that I know for a fact were sawing off people's heads before they got to our facility. And then I saw people who, the only reason they launched a mortar round or they were painting in a fight was because the real terrorists, the people who actually believed that nonsense, convinced them that if they didn't, they would kill their families. And so they had nothing. They had no other options available to them. Some of them, they got the money. They were doing it so they could get money to support their families because there was no other way. Some people, wrong place, wrong time. Somehow they managed to dodge the bullet and get away from not having to do anything. I watched an imam got told and death threats that they were going to kill him and his family if he kept coming to minister to the detainees who had no other religious person to help them. No one that knew that could go out there and say, Allah is looking out for you. Nothing. That guy got, he got death threats and he couldn't come to the facility anymore. I saw a lot of stuff in the facility. I came back with a understanding of what was going on out there. And ever since, every time I hear somebody say something about the terrible things, all Muslims, I don't stand for that. Because I went out there and I know what happened, what's really going on. Where here we just hear little tidbits. I was changed. I didn't go over there angry at them. But I came back with more understanding and sorrow for what's going on over there. So has it, has it changed me in any real sense? Well, I'd like to say that before I went out there, I still would have defended a Muslim in America. And I did. I did on a couple occasions where I'm like, not all Muslims, but that's because I believe that they were just Americanized. I didn't have this understanding of what was going on really over there. I don't know. Make any sense? Just just a little bit. No, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I, I don't know how anybody could experience a fraction of any of it um, and still not, you know, not have a, a different outlook after they get through that. And of course, people do. Um, not all people take advantage of it, and you, you clearly have taken advantage of, you know, your experience going forward now. Uh, Charles, I know you don't deal with people directly so much anymore um, like you used to. Uh, maybe you do. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. 
give me a story that you want sh- that you want to share with us um, that that uh, illustrates how your path dictates how you deal with people. Oh, that is a uh, see. That's rough to do be, because that's a uh, hard well, one. Like, I know. This, that, well, I want you to know, so Jed, I want you to know that Jed Jed wrote that question. So I, him and I put some effort into the, it. It is it is all his fault then, um, which is fine. They can blame some other, someone other than Allie this time. Yeah, but just this once. So I can't get into a lot of specifics because the very nature of what I do with my work is I'm a professional mystic. I do work with a lot of people through online. Um, but I can I can give an example without naming names. We had a situation. Where, let me give the background first. In, in any situation where a person feels they're under a kind of spiritual influence or attack, the very first thing I have to do is try to rule out a psychological component. And the reason for this is because there are a lot of psychological issues that a person can have that appear mystical to the untrained eye and working with someone to solve that. Not only are you taking their money for something that isn't helping them, which is bad enough, but often it encourages the negative psychological response in the case of schizophrenia, uh, bipolar at at the uh, third level, which there's a different technical term for it now. Uh, I've got several friends that are psychologists that help me keep up on some of this so that I'm able to not really diagnose, but rule out. And if at any point in a situation, I think someone is at risk, then it's my job to get them help if I can. And now what you've got to understand is that it's my job to get them help, but that's also not my job. If that makes any sense. It's uh it's my path, it's my calling, it's something I do because of who I am. But it's also a situation where it's not part of what I do for a living. It has no impact. If anything, it ensures that I make less money at the end of a month, which I'm fine with. I have no problem with that. But it definitely adds a lot of hours sometimes to the overhead for a month of trying to get things done. So with that set up and understood, there's a series of things that you can do to test for whether or not someone's having uh, a negative or hostile event occurring to them uh, through mystical application or some form of demon or whatever. And if you don't believe in those things, this is fine because the methods are more or less foolproof. I'm not going to get into those on this show because that's, that's, that's its own show. And in fact, that's its own show that I think I've already done before. Um, but what I am going to say is that after going through these steps and procedures, I determined that this individual definitely was having a psychosis of some form, that this was not mystical in any capacity, or if it was mystical in any capacity, the psychosis and mental issues needed handled first before this could be addressed. Well, I kept tabs on this person and kept up with them, and at some point they went suicidal. Uh, They made a couple posts. They made a couple statements in some areas that are not 
Facebook accessible, and I had to go into motion to get a hold of this person and make sure they were okay, which required a fair bit of uh, information reconnaissance um, and a fair bit of finding ways to call into countries that my phone, I use an online phone, uh, didn't have access to. But ultimately, I did get a hold of them. I get, did get them talked down, and I did get them to seek out help that would be beneficial to them. They they keep up with me from time to time. They send me a message letting me know how they're doing. Uh, they see a therapist now, uh, and they see a psychologist. And as I told them, I said, you know, when you get to the point where you're stable on that, if at any point I believe you have an issue that is mystical that I can help with, I'm more than glad to help. That's not an issue. But we have to solve this first. So I guess what this is, is that being a guardian is in my life, interacting with people to act as a guardian oftentimes is more about being able to see through problems in their lives and being able to find a solution and then step in the way, you know, and put myself at risk legally you know, if I make a wrong choice on how I handle this, if I uh, if I make a decision that is not legally ethical, I could be brought up on charges, and I know that. So I have to make decisions that are legally sound, but also ethically sound in getting people help. Um, I could go through the handful of situations, and I always remind people of this: there's a handful of times where it is actually a mystical occurrence. And where I resolved it for people, uh, some of whom have become very good friends of mine and who've even visited from out of country just to say hi and to say thanks. So that's a big part of mine is discernment. And Jared kind of hit on this a bit earlier, too, um, that, that concept from the old Jedi Code, the pursuit of knowledge over ignorance is a core of one of the things that I've had to take into my life because you will, you will do the worst harm to another person by seeking to do the best good with no information as to what's really going on. So I have to make certain to pursue knowledge in the extreme of both a, a person's situation and what they're going through. And a lot of times it means getting into very uncomfortable situations about their life, about what they're going through, uh, and oftentimes scary situations because there's a there's a bit of cold dead terror that gets inside your soul when you realize that this person that you're dealing with may be unhinged in a way that you can't necessarily help with, and that you've got to find a way to convince them to seek professional help because they're coming to you as an authority figure on this. And you've got to find a way to word it. You've got to find a way to approach it uh, with charisma and sometimes a bit of daring and a lot of juggling and put yourself on the back burner because part of you wants to be blunt and part of you wants to say, look, this is not your problem. You need to go do this right now, but that's just going to drive them in a hole. You've got to find that compassionate part when that stress hits. And you've got to be able to reinforce that because if you don't, then you will ensure that a tragedy happens 
and you might not be the cause of it legally. You might not be the guy who's got to do the cleanup work, but that'll eat your soul. I can say, thankfully, I've not had to worry about that. I haven't had anyone go over the deep end that I wasn't able to help. And every person that has come to me where it was a psychological situation instead of a mystical, I was able to get them help. I'm lucky um, in that I'm both lucky and that I've had the opportunity to learn from other people and other experiences and to gain knowledge and resources to help with this so that I'm not going into this blind. So that would be where, that would be the, that would be the kind of story that that's the story I can tell because I can't give you specifics about everyone's situation they dealt with where it was something like a banishing situation that worked out because then that gets into their personal details as to what was happening to them, the name right. and the place. And the thing is, okay, so the thing is I know Jed's going to get up here and he's going to, he's going to have to give the same speech. I just gave up. Well, I cannot give you details because the thing is there's a confidentiality that we have to uphold. Well, I appreciate that, but I'm actually going to ask him a different question if that's cool. Oh, well, that's because <laughs> you want to make it easy on him. Of course, of course, but I expect more out of you because you, you've put with me for all these years. Uh, there's not much else that you can't do. What do you think I was referring to of training to deal with difficult situations? I know. I'm referring to I the know. first time we set up an audio panel for you. <laughs> <laughs> Jed, I wanted to ask you because this is I, – I think the question is, is uniquely uh, tailored for you. Uh, the Guardian F. Is that because of your career, or or did you pick that career because of the path? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. I mean, obviously, Star Wars came out when I was a, a kid, and so I had this idea and, and these, these ideals. Uh, I've been studying martial arts in some way, shape, or form off and on for probably probably about 30 Six, thirty-seven years. So, I was always into to Bruce Lee and and, and books like uh, you know Zen and the Martial Arts, Joe Himes, and uh, things along that path. And then, uh, truth be told, when when the economy took its downturn in two thousand nine, I needed a career change, and uh, it was something that I had always wanted to do to to get into law enforcement, and and that's. That's what led me, or a lot of things that led me down that path, and uh, that, that's that, that's how I wound up doing what I'm doing. So it, it was it was a little bit of both. It wasn't one one specific thing. Uh, again, I just you know saw saw that opportunity and, and said you know it, it's time, it's time to just go and, and you know do that. And because of your mindset, it was a it was a pretty easy thing to kind of fall into, I imagine. It was. It, it was. It was one of those things where I think I'd, I'd matured enough at that point in my life where I just realized, okay, this is something that I'd thought about and something that I wanted to do, and I wasn't getting any younger, and uh, that that was the time. That was the time. It, it was essentially it was time to put, to put up or shut up. Right. And so I put up, and uh, it, it wasn't easy. I can tell you that right now. It wasn't easy. Probably the hardest thing I ever did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to used to go when I used to work. Uh, I used to work basically. Uh, I would drive an hour and a half 
one way to get to work, and then I would work eight hours. And then I would drive two hours and 20 minutes one way from work, and then I would sit in the classroom for five hours, and then I'd drive an hour and change home, and then I would study, and I would go to sleep, and I'd get about four and a half, five hours sleep. And I did that for almost a year until I finally graduated and uh, graduated with a, a 94 GPA for the, uh, for the academy. But it was just one of those things that uh, I wanted it and I, I was going to go get it, plain and simple. I wasn't going to be stopped. Uh, I was going to go get it. And that's one of those things where I think for anybody, not just anybody who follows this path, but anybody, if you, if you want something, if you see something, then go get it. Plain and simple, go get it. Don't, don't sit there and think about, well, this, this isn't going to be good or this isn't going to be easy. Nothing worthwhile is easy. If you want something, go get it. it, it it's, there's going to be moments of doubt. There's going to be moments of fear and what did I get myself into? But if you see it and you want it and you feel it in your bones that that is the place that you should be, then then go get it. Plain and simple, go get it. Yeah, I was going to ask you uh, uh, a follow-up that uh, I can recall, but I think much gave that a knock before we could even ask it. Uh, out of all the things you've experienced, um, I'm sure, well, I, you, you and I work similar, similar uh, career paths, mm-hmm. and um, I know I've experienced a lot of great things. I've experienced a lot of hard things. I've explained a lot of disgusting, sickening things. I have experienced things that brought me hope, and I have experienced things that have brought me despair. As those experiences relate to the to the path, um, how how often do you do you do you feel like uh, it's time to waver, or 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 does each experience kind of strengthen your resolve towards that end? It depends on what it is. Some of them, it's pretty easy to stay on the straight and narrow. Uh, I think as human beings, we are all protective of children and that that is the biggest one that really uh, really tests your resolve Uh, without trying to keep this as bland as possible uh, several investigations through the years uh, was a an individual who was molesting his uh, younger siblings and to sit there and uh, to, to to interview these younger siblings, uh, some of them they were okay. You, you talked to them, and you were able to just get the information. And it, it is it is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for you as the person speaking with them. I can't even imagine how uncomfortable it is for them. Uh, but the the youngest sibling, when I started to interview that individual, they, they started 
to literally shrink in their seat. And they started to slouch down and started sitting on their hands and rocking back and forth. And you could tell. You could tell by the look on their face, the, the, the look in their eye. They were reliving that situation. They, they were there. They were there. And it was something that had happened years, years prior. And I don't mean a couple. It was, you know, several years. And all of a sudden, that individual was right back in that moment. And when you see that, that, that tests your resolve because you're questioning your purpose because on one hand I talked earlier about accountability. You want that person. You want that person that, that, that suspect, you want them to be held accountable. You're also going to have to make the victim uncomfortable to get that information. And so you sit there and you're asking these questions and there's that voice in your head that it is, is telling you, stop. Just stop what you're doing because you can see how uncomfortable this person is. Stop. But you know that it's, it's what you need to do to get to where you need to be. And when you get over that hump, there's that relief. And when those charges are filed, you can go and you can talk to the victim afterward and you can see the relief in their face. But at that moment, you're going to drag them back through the mud. And it's not uncomfortable. It's not comfortable for you. It's not comfortable for them. And so you, you do question why you're doing what you're doing. And so it does make you does make you waver. It, it make I, I wouldn't say uh, necessarily changes my mind, but it, it definitely it makes you ask those questions. You know, you talk about the ignorance. Like I said, you you ask yourself like, what what am I doing here? And uh, you you have to look at that big picture and look at the the end result that you are attempting to achieve. Yeah. For. You you were just making me relive some of my old most uncomfortable interviews I've ever done before. <laughs> uh, you don't forget that stuff. You don't. Uh, you know, uh, consciously we put it behind us, but subconsciously it's still there. Uh, for me, the the thing that keeps me from grabbing somebody or by around the neck and you know, mm-hmm. um, exacting the the opposite of justice is is things like the. You know, uh, responsibility, respect, fairness, and family, the things that, that, that I built the KOA on, um, I built them on those things because those things have always helped me. And those things have always been good for me. Uh, the seven agreements, you know, especially justice and mercy. And um, mercy is a big one for me. I really have to – I'm, I'm, I'm better these days, but when I was younger, uh, mercy was something I had to really, really, really um, practice 
on because, Absolutely. like you said. Absolutely. It's, it's one of the things, and you talked about, you know, that, that, that balance and that fairness, and that's the thing. You, you uh, it, with the, the, the one investigation I was, I was just speaking of, the person who was the suspect, as I dug deeper, I realized that for, for this particular incident, they were my suspect. But the deeper I dug, the more I realized that they were a victim, that something had happened to them years ago. Uh, so did, did my outlook change? Yeah, it changed because there was additional information. Did mm-hmm. I think that that individual needed to be held accountable? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't – one doesn't change the other, but – uh, in in my position, depending on how you proceed, depending on how you frame things, and depending on how you uh, present things, you you can bury somebody. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. you can bury them, uh, and and so you need to make sure that you are remaining fair and asking yourself. Does the does the punishment fit the crime? Am I not in a physical sense, but in, in a, a, a legal sense? Am I keeping this fair? Am I uh, am I enacting a, a a revenge of sorts? And so you just need to make sure that you just keep it even keeled. And, and that's that's another part where you sit there and just trying to stay on that path and just controlling yourself. Not that you don't feel emotions, but just that you don't you don't let them uh, get get the best of you. And uh, yeah, was, I think it was was it Nietzsche. I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but uh, he he was the the one who had the famous quote. Uh, Beware when fighting monsters that you yourself do not become a monster. And so that's just one of those quotes that just sticks with me for that specific reason. Because you, you know, you you can present a good picture, but it doesn't mean that uh, your intent is pure. And so only you know what's going on inside your head. And you need to make sure... That, that you're keeping your head on straight with that type of stuff. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely opens your perspective um, to a much broader understanding and, and, and view of what's in front of you. And this is what's good for, for everyone, not just those conducting an investigation. But right. if you allow yourself to open your perspective to see past what you, what you perceive is a block in front of you, let's say, you know, I, I'm fighting with my wife and she, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not looking past her to see what the bigger picture is. I'm not stepping back. Well, then I'm going to hold her accountable possibly to something that's in her fault uh, or, or to our kids or to our friends, our coworkers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's a, it's a really dark, dark way of saying, you know, um, sometimes you got to step back and, you got to show the fortitude to, to get past your emotional state. You know, I mean, God, I want to wring this guy's neck because of what he's done. I know he's done it. Let's just, let's just, let's just go right to the execution. 
but it's hard to it's hard but necessary to go through that and say, but let's let's get his side of the story because that's what you know justice is about. It's about understanding the bigger picture instead of just dropping the the axe on everybody. Right. Absolutely. You don't want you don't want to just arbitrarily drop the hammer, and that's the thing. You you sometimes you go. Uh, domestic violence is another big one. You go for that, and you you see somebody, uh, you see a spouse who is ninety pounds soaking wet, and they've been they've been beat up by a spouse who is six to two hundred and forty pounds, and it w- it wasn't a fair fight. It was never a fair fight. And so there's, there is a part of you that wants to step up and, and say, like, you know, hey, you, you want to try me? Because I will fight back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but you, you can't. You have to remain that, re- retain that professionalism, and you have to retain your integrity. You have to remain impartial. And there is a part of you that does want to step up, and you can't. And so you, you take a different avenue. You take a different approach, and you say, "I will. I will ensure that justice is served, and that accountability is served. But I will do it in a different way." Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's why, you know, I, I also think, you know, just that, that as Jared had mentioned earlier, that you know, the, no, no ignorance and, and knowledge. And that's, that's really what you want to, what you want to uh, strive for. And something else that you had mentioned earlier, and it, I, I've seen it in other places. I believe it's the British special, special forces, but I've also seen it listed as the Jedi rules of engagement. Open your eyes to what cannot be seen. Mm-hmm. And it's basically saying educate yourself. What is truly going on here? And that's what you're looking for. You're you're not looking for his side or her side or this person's side or that person's side. You're just looking for the truth. What happened? Here? Right. Good, yep. bad, or indifferent. What happened here? Yep. And it's really hard sometimes. And you know, I, I uh, the 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 only example I have. Um, and I've been posting this over at the KOA Facebook page. Um, I've already posted up all the founding principles, and that's responsibility, respect, fairness, and family. This week, uh, starting today, I've already put up, I started putting up notes, um, but we're going to be exploring the um, seven uh, nightly agreements. Um, and those things, that's, those are my, th- those are the easiest way for me to explain to somebody why I don't um, give somebody the rock bottom when they, <laughs> when they step up, you know. But uh, right. let's move on to Jared. Speaking of Jared, um, Jared, you you said earlier that, that you are you are the longest living OG. Did I hear that correct? The longest active member of the Jedi community. So so with that being the said, only one that, I am the only one that saw the message boards born. So with that being said, coming from like I, I started in around 2002, um, and the fiction was very very prevalent. 
in those days, even in those days, and I'm sure I'm sure it started that way. How important how important uh, is the fiction um, to the path today? Are you still pulling from that? Or are you still are you, is it still relevant for you? I will often still quote parts of it, but it's more of the newer fiction, like the original Zon trilogies and the Jedi Academy trilogy. They were stories. They didn't have a lot of depth into the mindset. <clears throat> but then, again, with the Jedi Academy trilogy, um, the companion book to that, I, Jedi, it's the story of Cord Horn from his perspective. And it is very, very introspective. And it deals a lot more with the Jedi from the, from the view of this former cop. I mean, he was, he was Corsair Security. He was a cop for 10 years before he became an X-Wing pilot. And found out he was Force-sensitive. And so now he's training with Luke and butting heads with him. Because Luke was taught to be a weapon. And Korn was taught to be a cop. So there's a lot of introspection there. And then another one that I will often both recommend and quote is the New Jedi Order book, Traitor. Because um, it's, it's the story of Jason when he was getting tortured and lost off into Nowhereville. And everybody thought he was dead. And it was, that's the only part of the story was just Jason. And it was written by Matt Stover, who's like a 20-year-old martial artist at this point. So his, his battle frenzy scenes are really good. And the, the way he thinks and the way – like there's a, a scene in it where he's deciding what lives and what dies. And it's something I have coined the phrase, um, the gardener's prerogative. You decide what the weeds are. And um, the, the phrase in there that he uses a lot, it's, it's, not, it, it's like a play on do or do not, there is no try. Because whether you're doing not or you're doing, you're deciding what you're going to do, even if it's sit on your hand. So the, the phrase that is used is choose and act. And so I will use these. Like there's a lesson in the, the novelization of episode three where – um, Obi-Wan's teaching Anakin that nothing lasts forever, even stars die. I will use that with as the, the fiction beget, becomes more or became more detailed, more psychological, more philosophically in-depth, there are some really good stories and, and really good lessons that you can take from those stories. So yes, I will still use the fiction in those. I am not a fan of fantasy technology, and that's as far as I'm going to go on that discussion right this second. But um, that, that's an image that was very prevalent when I started. There was a lot of RPG way back then because that's what we knew, man. We knew Luke Skywalker said this, so we're going to go do this. Da, da, da. And, I mean, it was helpful, but as our path has developed... Our path doesn't match that path anymore. That's why earlier I was saying that my ideal Jedi Knight wasn't a Jedi Knight. He was a guardian of the wills. Because the, the fiction has taken the Jedi so much bigger than what we saw in the original trilogy. The original trilogy, it was Luke fighting a bad guy that ended up being his dad and saving him. And killing a really bad guy. Not generals running whole armies against robots that and the mm, that in itself 
I don't much care for like the the Clone Wars or Rebels. There's some decent stories in there, but they're they're reinforcing a Star Wars version of lazy lazy racism because they call all the droids clankers, and then the Rebels they call the stormtroopers bucketheads. That is no different than a gook and a zipperhead. Okay, those are. Those are things I don't agree with and will never, never, ever be okay with hearing. I watch them just to say I watch them, but I don't like it. So there's a lot of the fiction, the newer fiction, the Disney fiction most specifically, has, has destroyed so much of this solid base that I don't pull from a lot of the newer stuff because it's so shallow. And it's just trying to tell a story, man. It's the house of mouse trying to make money. But... Lucas started this crap to make people think, and I'm pretty positive almost all of his authors up to that point were told that until they weren't his authors anymore, until Disney took over. Yeah, there's been some bad books, and there's been some stupid books, but by and large, the fiction is a very good place to look for clues. But, you know, like I said, I'm sitting in my room surrounded by weapons. I'm sitting in my room surrounded by books, too. And I'm looking at every Star Wars book I've got on one side of the room and all of my martial arts philosophy on the other. And so I'll pull from the fiction, and I'll work it in to human history to make it make sense. Because there are times that the fiction will give you a lesson that doesn't make sense unless you have a, a historical basis to put it on. Like, looking at the way the Jedi act, that just sounds really cool, but it doesn't look like it does anything until you compare it to the seven tenets of Bushido. You know? So, do I take from the fiction? Not so much anymore, because the fiction's not very good anymore. Do I still use what I took? Absolutely, every day. If I mean, if nothing else, I was quoting the code to you a minute ago. That's like original... RPG game before Empire right. Strikes Back, original right. fiction. You know, that's a long time ago. Yeah, I, I, I suppose you could say quote-unquote religious documents are fiction in, in one respect or one regard or the other. Yeah. They're written by authors that we can no longer talk to. And there's And that's the only written history of those. There's no way to verify it. I'm not going to get into the religious argument there about what holy books might not be real. It doesn't exactly matter how historically factual they are if they tell the fable. If they're allegorical and they teach you something, I'm good with it. Yeah. I, I, if they, I don't care if, I don't they care propel if it's you, Muhammad or if it's Luke Skywalker. It doesn't matter to me. Right. If it propels Esau you to be a better person. Yeah. Fables. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, if it propels I mean, you to be a better fables, person. I'm okay with it. I'm looking at my shelf of Star Wars, and they are George Lucas's fables. Yeah, I'm going to put them right there with Aesop on teaching people how to do things if you know how to read the stories. It's uh, it, it's funny because I'm I'm re-listening to the Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell again. It's like a 14-hour book or something. It's a it's really long. <laughs> but yeah, I'm listening is. to it again. It's great though. It, it's uh, you know what I like most about that is that I get to learn about all these different other kind of fables and things that I never knew existed. 
But uh, Charles, uh, same for you. I don't know. If, I don't know how. What? Go ahead. Until you start looking into half the stories I've been trying to find, and that's just Christian. You want yeah. stories that you don't know about. I found a whole slew of books to help out with lore investigations whenever we can get that back up and running. Well, let's let's take it to you. I know you're not a big fan of fish, fiction, right? Uh, did you take any kind of fictional? Uh, it doesn't have to be doesn't have to be Star Wars fiction. Um, have you do you use any kind of fictional um, inspiration? Do you get inspiration from anything fictional? Uh, well, I'm I'm very much into anime. Um, my first anime was Sailor Moon, and that that launched a lot of. Uh, not really my spirituality, but my self-esteem. It helped me there. Um, Charles actually showed how you could find spirituality in Bleach a long time ago. Yes, he did. When you're first starting out, you can find things anywhere if you really look. Uh, but I think that, for me, what I find most interesting when I look into historical fiction, at least, is what people believed. And, like, I did a project um, and for the for the Jedi called the Jedi Sex, and I'm creating cards for them. And I went looking through, and I found some really dark stuff in our history across the world. Like, we're talking things in the Eskimo cultures, uh, things in the – things in – South America and the Aboriginals, uh, a lot of dark history, and I incorporated some of that into my cards because why ignore the truth of who we were and what we've become today? And even at that, you can still find things in there that different different people still find value in and can be flabbergasted by the fact that they do. We, we've come so far ahead in time from when these stories were first birthed and yet some of them still hold true to who we are. So for me, it's, it's really just a study in, in human history and who we are today. But as far as who, who I personally am, I don't really take a lot of inspiration from fiction anymore. Uh, unless you want to include the Bible as, Fiction, which I know many people do, I don't. <laughs> then you know it's just, you start out that way, you get up to a point where you don't really need to rely on it anymore because you have mm-hmm. started to see how the world really works if you're paying attention to it. And then we reduced it, we boiled it down. The Jedi compass, even though it's it's just the very basic. I go beyond the Jedi compass, but I've been able to advance it in such a way through reading materials and whatnot that we've done and interacted with other people that that document is far more than what it looks like when you initially look at it. If you start making connections and putting things together in what's really going on around the world and how those things join together, it's so much more than just a a document that looks like it's a boiled down version of the Jedi path. 
And the same is true for many people like uh, Miko, Jared. Do you, do you go by Miko still? Sometimes, Jared? but not for this particular example. Okay. So, Jared. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll, just, we'll use Jared for right now. <laughs> so, Jared, Jared was talking about how the Jedi code is, is so much more than what it looks like on the surface. A lot of people will look at that code and they'll see the first line and they'll think, I got to get rid of all of my emotions and become just devoid of them. And you're like, no, that's not really what it means. Look beyond that and then put it together with the rest of the code so that it's not in a vacuum. And that's where Jared has said that he's, He's actually integrated it into his life in more than just what's there. And that's kind of how the compass has worked with us. We also incorporate the code. Uh, I incorporate in it state expanded version from the Heartland Jedi Creed, which takes all the different codes and puts them all together in our own format. But the point is, is that when you really start studying something and you really look at how it applies to your life and you meditate on it, for a long time, you don't really need to rely back on it, but you use it to teach other people to get to where you are. And I kind of feel like that's really where Jared is. He doesn't have to rely on that code anymore because it's already so ingrained in him that he doesn't have to go back and look at it. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Speaking of using anime for... uh Animes for inspiration, um, and also the Green Lantern. You used to do that a lot too. Do you, do you still look to the Green Lantern for inspiration, Charles? Well, certainly I do. In fact, uh, Green Lantern remains one of the better inspirational concepts because of the idea of willpower being a measurable concept, and the fact that I have been on a crusade for the better part of twenty years now to reinforce that most mysticism is a function of directed willpower. Um, And most people that I know over any period of time tend to agree with me after a while, especially when they see that they get better results from hoping their willpower versus uh, doing dances uh, and singing songs and such, or waving their hands about uh, non-strategically. So as far as pulling from the fiction and, my day-to-day path, I would say that fictional stories inspire us to be the person we can be because they give us a hero that can't fail. And what I mean by that is that if you look at any of your personal heroes in your life, I don't know about you, but every one of my personal heroes has let me down on some level because uh, they just, they're human. And you, you see that human part of them and it breaks your heart because you build this idea. And they're never going to live up to it. So they've got to let you down. And that's a good thing. But it's not always in a good way. Because it's oftentimes in the places in our life that we can't deal with being let down at that time when it happens. So pulling from fiction and fictional heroes and ideas and stories of fictional heroes gives us something to aspire to. And in that aspiration, we become a little bit better a little bit closer to that ourselves, or it gives us an anchor point, even if we don't know someone who really did that. So I'll give a, a quick real-world example of someone, something I've seen someone do. 
and then I'll give the fictional example and why it had to apply to me more. I have seen a man with a destroyed back rebuild it through his mystical practices in terms of Qigong, uh, Tai Chi, and other things of that nature, and go from being unable to walk to being functional again. I'm not saying everyone can do that. I'm not, I would never push that line. And uh, this was after the doctors had failed to do anything. But it was a really inspirational thing. This is a real world person that I knew who's passed away since then. But in that, that was so extreme that it was beyond its ability in some ways to give me hope. And it was someone who I had taught. And it's very, it's going to sound terrible. It's, it's hard to put your student on a pedestal. It's hard to look up to them as the example because they're busy looking up to you. So you can't let yourself slide out of that position. But on a, on a fictional example of something that had to help me that's very similar to that real world, uh, about five, six years ago, I shattered a finger in sword fighting. Let me be clear, as a lot of people don't know me, and I've had to explain this many times, wooden swords. I actually said someone I got so upset with myself that I broke my finger in sword fighting uh, after get, getting hit with a sword. And they go, you, your, your finger got hit with a sword? And you're only upset that it only broke, that it didn't get chopped off, and it hit me. When you say sword fighting to most people, they immediately assume live steel blades. That's a fully sharpened edge that will chop through a limb, certainly a, a finger, <laughs> if it were to hit. Um, they don't think wooden swords that you used to practice and get better with. So I, I make sure that that's very clear. So after shattering that finger, um, I took to the long process of it healing up, not knowing it was broken at first. So, of course, I let it heal wrong because this was the time in an era when I did not have medical insurance or the option of really going to a doctor. So it healed wrong. It didn't heal so wrong that you would, you could tell just by looking at it unless I like pointed it out to you what it doesn't do right now. But uh, is that pain, and if you've shattered a finger, not, not just a break at one spot, but an actual shatter at the joint, it's, uh, it's a level of pain. I, I won't say it's the worst pain I've ever been through. That would be when a tooth exploded. Um, but it's a level of pain that you will never forget. It stays with you, and it takes a long time for that pain to go away. It takes a long time for that to heal for it to become usable again. And I, I think you'll know where I'm going with this. I think Justin will know. But the uh, Doctor Strange series involves a man who loses the use of his hands, who was a doctor. Well, for me, I lost the use of being able to be a really great martial artist in the arts that I was good in because boxing is a very punching heavy art form and I'm going to tell you this you don't do a lot of punching with a broken finger it even changes the way you lift weights if it uh, heals wrong it changes the way you grip things you find out that you lose grip strength on it you lose lifting strength because you have to balance your hand differently and I had to come to the conclusion that no matter how good I got with a sword, I was for the rest of my life going to have a handicap that everyone else didn't. And I had to look at myself as I was rebuilding from this with this injury, one of one of dozens of injuries that my body has now. I'm training a bit too hard and fighting people uh, two or three steps above my level way too often to try and get better. 
I had to look at this and those other injuries and realize that I had to reinvent myself in some ways in a different way, but some ways a familiar way. And the story of Dr. Strange really kind of resonated with me being a mystic. It's not like I stopped being a mystic before this, but I realized that that was always where I had my greater strength in. That's what I was really called to be. And that this other thing that I was aiming towards, I may have had some calling towards it, but it wasn't all of who I was. That I was a uh, a different type of guardian, if you will. That, yeah, I will step in the way physically if someone's in trouble. In fact, I will be the first one to step in the way. Well, I can't say I got too many fine people here. You all are faster than I am on your feet. You'd beat you'd beat me there. I would get I'd get there slower. I'm slow. But uh, you wouldn't be standing alone if I was there. That's for sure. And I realized that. But that wasn't how I defined myself as a guardian and how I defined myself as a person. So like Dr. Strange, I had to rebuild. I had to rebuild myself because I could no longer throw myself into the martial aspect. I couldn't. Like if you, if you think you can hit a heavy bag and do push-ups and lift weights while you've got a shattered finger, um, you're a better person than I am. Maybe. I don't know. I was still lifting weights with it. Just not very well. You're less intolerant of pain than I am, perhaps, or maybe uh, you just broke your your finger different than I did. But it, it was an eye opener. Um, couple that with multiple tendon injuries for the feet and knees. And Justin and I have talked about this before. Uh, him and I are a walking catalog of leg and foot injuries. In fact, doctors just pull up our our charts now, and they they say you know. Justin chart number three, you know, Charles chart number four in the medical community. It's just quicker than actually, you know, keeping a list of different leg and, uh, leg and foot ailments that a person can have. But at some point you change the way you go about doing things. And for me, that story allowed me to transform myself and to refocus in an area that I needed to focus in an area that had been calling to me that I think in a, in a very real sense, I try to run away from because I don't know why. Because because the, the the idea of the noble guy with the sword sounded better, because it was flashier. And the mystic is uh, is in some ways while flashier a much more humble path. Um, no one no one claps while you meditate for an hour. I, I assure you, no one claps when you're on your thousandth mantra for that day. But when you're at the gym and you've just pushed 300 pounds. People show up and they kind of, yeah, but you got that. No one claps when you're on your eighth book on runes or symbols or seals. Uh, but they sure as heck do if you put in two hours on, on the treadmill at high speed. It's, it's a different culture. And having to go back to that humbleness and to humble myself to get there. I needed a fictional, a fictional inspiration that I could look up to because the real world inspiration, well, he's long past. Uh, I mean, past is him deceased. I can't call him up on the phone, which is what I would have needed. And what is left of him will be my memories. So I need something that 
I could bring to my mind that was solid, even if it wasn't real. Remember, if your mind does not know the difference between fiction and reality, not on a subconscious level. So you see a story, you think it's real. You, maybe you don't consciously do, but subconsciously, it's working its way in there. And knowing that I used that as a gestalt to start resetting my life, and uh, it was about a year later that I was able to move from a hole-in-the-wall apartment down to a much warmer climate in Florida and take what I had gained from my previous mystical workings but also turn this injury that was a defeat into a forward charge, into a better life, into a career doing what I'd been called to do, what I'd been born to do, and to help people. And actually be able to help them because you know what? For all the training I ever did with the sword, I never have used a sword to protect anyone. For all the boxing and all the martial arts and all of that, you'd be surprised how few times I've been called in to bust a head. Um, because the number is zero. I've been called in to be a, a safety measure, to be an extra set of arms just in case, but never was I called to really solve a problem, but people have a demonic possession or they just can't find their direction in their life and they need someone to help them find it. It's got that uniqueness that comes from that mystical training, that ability to sense what's coming. I have been called on to do that so many times that I couldn't tell you when the first time was and I wouldn't be able to count. Yeah. You, that's what the, that's what those stories do. That's what that fiction does is it gives us something to emulate in our dark times. It gives us something to strive for in our best times and to grow towards. And it gives us something we can relate to when there's no other way to relate to it because Dr. Strange is always going to get his magic back. Dr. Strange is always going to relearn his ability. Doctor Strange is always going to have his ups and downs and come back out. But your sensei, your sensei may drink and fight and beat his wife. And your best friend may be the greatest guy on earth, you know, right until he cheats on his girlfriend. You know, these people in your life that would be the ideal that you use to help mold yourself will never live up to it. There'll always be a flaw that they have and the way the world works, it'll always come out at the worst time for you. So I see the fiction as a way of creating a template that we know we're going to fail at, and you're supposed to fail, and it's cool. It's good to have failed at it because you're failing upward, and you're getting better for having failed upward towards a goal instead of failing downward into the idea that you can't be better than you were. That's, that's the way I see the fiction, and you can pull spirituality from that. And I certainly do. But a lot of spirituality isn't, you know, do I talk to the gods or do I light candles? A lot of spirituality is how do I make myself a better person today? And in that, the fiction, all of the fiction in the world where there's a hero who faces a daunting task, all of it is invaluable to us. It's just everybody has the part that will resonate with them. Jed, I'm gonna move on to you um, along the same lines here because I, I I read a book a while back called uh, Musings of a Wayward Jedi, and uh, there was definitely a progression uh, that happened from fiction to, to more nonfiction. Can you can you help me with that? 
Can you be more specific? <laughs> How is fiction? I, I I know that you were inspired by the fiction because I read that somewhere. Um, does that does that does that still uh, kind of affect you today? Does that kind of keep motivated, or have you kind of moved on to to more? Yeah. Yeah. Do I still pull from the fiction? Yeah. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Um, not necessarily in the uh, the archetypes, but more in in some of the the quotes and. and uh, one of my favorite books is from the prequel errors, and it's a book called Cloak of Deception. And there is a line from Qui-Gon, and I'm paraphrasing, but what it says is essentially, until the possible becomes reality, it is nothing but a distraction. And I think that is, given our current situation with this, this pandemic, I think that is extremely appropriate because you know there's all this information out there and and the the, the bigger issue and, and i can I can speak to this because I have sat in sat in on 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 meetings and received countless emails. The issue is that the information changes sometimes daily, and initially it was wear a mask, a mask will help. Then it was, don't wear the mask. A mask won't help. Then it was back to wear the mask. And the the rationale was that by wearing the mask, it was going to keep the the germs, the virus, from getting in. Then it became, don't wear a mask because the mask is not going to keep the virus from getting in. Then it became wear a mask again because you might be a carrier and asymptomatic. So therefore, you're not going to stop yourself from getting the virus, but the, the mask might stop you from spreading it. So in that way, like I said, you, you, you look at something like until until the, the possible becomes reality, it's nothing but a... So... Uh, that's like I said, just one of those things where I still pull maybe not specific uh, archetypes or heroes and villains, but more of the uh, just phrases and ideas. Okay, speaking of, you, you kind of segued into something I wanted to uh, kind of talk about off, off script sure. a little bit. Um, not that Half of us didn't see the script. More like little questions, but anyways. Uh, <laughs> kind of quickly, because we've got about 15 minutes left uh, before the show's over. Uh, each of you, uh, we'll, st- we'll start with you, because I got you on right now. Uh, how has this pandemic uh, affected you, or if any way, from the mindset of a guardian? So, So as a from the guardian mindset, how have you approached this this pandemic um, that's going on? And, and each of us are affected, of course, roughly the same way, I'm sure. Well, it it changes the protocol. It does it does change your protocol. Uh, you, you have your 
PPE or protective personal protective equipment. And so you are required to don it when you're dealing with people. Uh, certain things are, are handled by phone, and, and you avoid that face-to-face contact if possible. And if uh, you can't, then obviously you go and you handle things that have to be handled in person. And you go from there. Uh, certain things are not going to change about the job. And uh, th- there's really no way around those those specific aspects. Beyond that, you, you try and be as careful as you can possibly be. And uh, that that's really, that's it. I mean, it, there's more situational awareness, and that's something that has increased even more than, than, than before. But yeah, it, beyond that, it's really just trying to do what you can do, just staying, staying you know, in, in that, that moment and just trying to make sure that you're doing all the things. You can, am I remembering this? Am I remembering this? Did I do this? Whatever it might be. Am I maintaining that distance? And you, you're going to retain that reactionary gap regardless of, uh, uh, of what is going on currently. But even now, that, that reactionary gap has increased. It, it's doubled because the information initially was 6 feet. Now they're saying 13 feet. It's it's changing daily, so that that's really that's where you're at at the moment for us. I I was trying to talk to you, Ali, but my mic was. It's hard to do that. Well, I could reach out to you through the first, I guess. But uh, <laughs> same same uh, question to you. Do you remember the question? What was the question again? <laughs> uh, from the, uh, I don't know. How are you? <laughs> well, I don't want to ask you the same way I asked him. <laughs> how is this uh, from from the perspective of your uh, of your path currently? Um, how has the pandemic affected you, if if at all? It hasn't, and mostly because I've been stuck in a situation where I've been having to social distance because I don't have friends where I am, and I know that sounds absolutely horrible for many of you guys. You're like, oh, no, don't don't feel sorry for me. I've, I've gotten through it, <laughs> but where I am, I really don't have any friends, and it's hard for me to connect to anybody. My idea... Uh, those of you who have actually followed any of my Christian work of what Christian Christian theology really should be and how it all works is very different from most people. So as you can probably see, think, she lives in the Bible Belt of South Carolina. So when my ideas are so opposed to to the people that are around me and I have a very loud presence, I mean, which is evident from when I came in earlier and I was like, you guys don't know who I am? (laughs) But I just don't get, I I can't make connections here. So as a result, I've ended up having to social distance in an introverted way. Did we lose her? I'm still here. Oh, there you go. Now I can hear you. Okay. (laughs) So, so yeah, I've I've had to social distance 
for a long time now, years now. And I've had to get through it. I've had to go through depression spurts. Charles has heard me depressed time and time again because I just don't have anybody here. Um, I've, I've had to basically connect with everybody online anyways. So we got lucky. Uh, my husband is not out of the job because his job is deemed essential since he makes chemicals for, uh, like, industrial um, laundry machines that they use in hospitals and whatnot. And then for me, I'm a security guard on the weekend. You don't get any more essential than that without being a police officer, EMS, or hospital worker, (laughs) you know? So uh, it hasn't changed for me. But what I have been doing, and I mentioned this, and uh, some you guys don't get to see the things that go on behind the scenes, but we'll we'll sit there and we'll chat during these shows. We'll we'll send little messages, and I had commented that in a way, being by doing what we're doing by social distancing and keeping up with all the health regulations that we're supposed to be doing. Um, we're actually guarding the peace in a way. And so in this case, like I had mentioned that I don't really see myself as a guardian. I don't not see myself as a guardian all the time. Okay, I think that's grammatically wrong. There are temporary times when I act as a guardian, and I believe that everybody has temporary moments where they do act as a guardian. And if you're following all the regulations, and I had mentioned this to Justin in, in chat during this call, that you're actually being a guardian of the peace and you're protecting other people. So it's important for us to, to recognize that even our inaction, though I can't really say, I mean, if you're actually doing washing your hands, that is a form of action, but we're mostly inactive right now. We are still protecting a great deal of people by doing this. Did I get my point across? Because I feel like it was a lot better in the text. <laughs> well, you know what? Because you said that, I'm going to read exactly what you wrote just, just we so go. we can make sure. <laughs> uh, many of us are acting in the capacity of guardians temporarily by actually adhering to COVID-19 advice. That's what you wrote. So, yeah, that's what you said, too. So, yeah, it matched for the most part. <laughs> uh, Jared, I'll go to you. Uh, from the from the perspective of a, of a guardian, uh, what do you make of this COVID thing, and how has it affected you, if at all? I'm going to go back to quoting the fiction. We all choose an act. We choose whether or not we want to go expose ourselves. That's the action we take. We as guardians should choose to help people decide to not act like morons and go get themselves sick and go visit their grandparents before they know they're sick and then kill their grandparents, you know? We are supposed to break ignorance and give knowledge. This situation, the COVID pandemic, it is a perfect example of inactive action. It's from a book that 
uh, from Zen and the Martial Arts that Jed mentioned earlier. It's a great book. It's right here next to me on my shelves. Um, it is intentionally making the choice to do nothing that would cause any harm or stress or make you not appreciate a moment type of things. But as an, as a guardian, the best thing we can do is make people stop being stupid and stay at home as much as they can. Like I'm in Tennessee and they're talking about reopening, lifting the ban on the state at the end of the month so that the economy can pick back up. And while I don't disagree with that concept and I understand that the part of the country I live in, the COVID cases are super, super low. It does not mean that we should not maintain some level of PPE and social distancing and stay at home when you don't have to. If you don't have to go out, don't. You don't have to go eat out every night. Cook your food. You just got a month and a half worth of practice. I know you're tired of it. Order a pizza tonight. Cook tomorrow. It's it's teaching us to not be so flippant with our actions. And as a knight, you shouldn't ever be flippant with your actions anyway. So by being shut-ins, by being hermits, like, you know, good little muppets in the swamp, um, we're, we're helping. And it's also giving us plenty of time for those of us like myself that are no longer an essential employee, I get a lot of training time in. But it's also giving me a lot of thought time. It's giving me a lot of time to work on myself and to further myself along this path and try and find ways to help others along this path so that they too can act as guardians and understand the role. Because, I mean, let's face it, people here Jedi, they think laser swords, man. And that's not what we are anymore. That's what they are on Star Wars now. And Charles, you. Same question to you, Charles. So for me, as a knight, um, in a lot of ways, it's it hasn't impacted my day-to-day life as much other than I wear a mask out when I go outside and I effectively have to help in an in information war where people are putting false information out. Um, I'm a stay-at-home business. We've not been impacted financially, and I'm very blessed and thankful for that. But at the same time, I see misinformation everywhere, and I have basically had to become the Green Arrow uh, in his conversation with the Flash, or the Flash in his conversation with the Green Arrow. I'm there telling people, wear a mask. (laughs) Um and doing my best to try to keep people from putting false information up, fact-checking my own information, and trying to give advice that I believe will save lives or trying to act in ways that will save lives without letting my own fervor get the best of me. And that's the hard part as a knight. Um, You and I had this discussion when we did the show on the agreements, which when we did it was on the virtues, you know, uh, justice without mercy is is a terrible thing. Well, when you approach people without compassion, you may be bringing them the truth, but you got to do it in a way 
that keeps you from being on the high horse because either A, you hurt them and achieve nothing and they still go do what they were going to do, or B, you don't reach them at all. So that's been the hard part for me is trying to find ways that I can help in this, knowing that there's not much that anyone can do and watching the world go through such terrible things and knowing that there's not much I can do about that either. It's definitely made each interaction with people though that much more important that I try to be a calming influence even though I try to be a very real influence. I have to be the guy that says, look, this is bad. You need to deal with it. You need to handle this. You need to take these precautions, but you don't need to let that panic make you do stupid things or do things that are going to get you hurt. So I have to walk that middle ground because on the one hand, I don't want the message to sound weak. This is a dangerous thing. My wife has lost a friend to it already. There are people losing people to it all day, every day. And I don't want that. I don't want to give a weak message. But on the other side of that, I don't want to come in like a 10,000 you know, ton tank and run someone over and be like, well, hey, you know, sorry, but now you're in a state of panic and you don't know how to deal with your world and you're having a mental collapse. That's, that's the hard part is finding that middle ground that lets you deal with this without destroying people on an emotional level, especially when they look up to you. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, to 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 punctuate what uh, you guys have said, do your best to be the example. You know, just don't just talk and talk and talk. Show them what you want them to do. Show them the best way, and and it's always it's always about being the example. Uh, that's gonna do it for us, guys. We we have hit uh, almost a two hour mark, so I want to say thanks. Uh, Jed already took off on us. Um, he had to go do something. Uh, Jared, thank you so much. Uh, Jared, I'm going to want to be reaching back out to you here soon um, because now that I know you're not shy, you're not scared of the radio, we might have some things for you that uh, you can help me with. But, but, but I, appreciate, I appreciate your time today, man. I appreciate you, you doing this, setting this up, having me again because it's been some years, bro. It has been. Uh, Charles and Allie, uh, of course, thank you. Um, Allie, uh, let everybody know what's going on with the, with the gathering real quick before we get kicked off the air. Yeah, 30 so seconds. we had to cancel the gathering, but we are looking at a possible virtual gathering. It's looking more and more viable. We'll have more information coming soon. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Um, at this point, we can't schedule shows on the regular, but uh, I'll try to give you at least a day or two notice before we do a show like this. Uh, but I thank you guys so much. Uh, we love you. And until next time, awaken the night within. <laughs>